Welcome to the SCI Forum podcast. This podcast was produced by the Northwest Regional Spinal Cord Injury System in the University of Washington Department of Rehabilitation Medicine. The Northwest Regional SCI System is dedicated to improving the lives of people with SCI through excellent patient care, research, and education. To learn more about our podcasts and videos or to make a donation, go to sci.washington.edu. This podcast was taken from a live SCI forum presentation and may refer to images or visual information that helps to illustrate the spoken content. You can watch the video on our website or YouTube channel. Go to sci.washington.edu slash videos. Welcome to the Spinal Cord Injury Forum. My name is Jeannie Hoffman, and I'm the uh, director of the Northwest Regional Spinal Cord Injury System and a rehabilitation psychologist here at the University of Washington. Tonight, we are very pleased to welcome Conrad Reynoldson. He's an attorney and the founder of Washington Civil and Disability Advocate. Conrad's going to talk about Americans with Disabilities Act, um, how it applies to all aspects of public life, and what to do if you have questions or suspect discrimination. There'll be time to answer questions at the end, so we'd like him to do his presentation first. Uh, please join me in welcoming Conrad. Thank you for the introduction. Tonight's presentation is called The ADA, What You Need to Know. As mentioned, my name is Conrad Reynoldson, and uh, I have a law firm called Washington Civil and Disability Advocate that's particularly um, focused on enforcing disability rights under the ADA. So without further ado, let's get started. Uh, next. So we've made a lot of progress over the years, and I'd like to emphasize that from the beginning. So 40 years ago, we had stairs, curbs, People were homebound, there were transfers, we had typewriters and pens, widespread discrimination without any legal remedy, and accessibility was really an afterthought, kind of a charitable thing. But today, we have ramps and lifts, we have curb cutouts, Seattle's building more and more now, we have modified vans and buses, we have speech to text, we actually have legal protections for now, and universal design. Next slide. So this uh, first part that I like to cover though is uh, ADA myth conceptions is what I call it. Next slide. And here's a few interesting examples of access. I'm sure you've seen some just like this. <laughs> so here, the first one, fail number one, I'll call it. Here we have what is supposed to be passing as a ramp curving at nearly 90 degrees of five steps. The ramp is split in the middle, and has two very narrow sides that wheels could barely fit on. And apparently they tried to make it less horribly dangerous by building up the concrete along the outside of the ramp. <laughs> Fail number two. <laughs> Here we have what is supposed to be an accessible crosswalk. <laughs> and I always give credit where credit is due. So it's worth pointing out that the curb cutout itself is highly visible. <laughs> the blue and white paint make it quite clear what is supposed to be happening here. However, that's kind of where my compliments end. There's a sizable median in the middle of the crosswalk that doesn't really have any path through. Apparently you have to go all the way around off camera. Who knows how far that is. And then the additional thing that's barely visible, and bonus points if you can spot it, Anybody? What's the other thing wrong with this? Yes, the yellow posts at the other end of the crosswalk. So imagine that, you get all the way down there and then have to turn right back around and go through this adventure all over again. All right, next slide. Here's the third and last of these fails. <laughs> so an attempt at a ramp, clearly, attempt being the operative word there, and the one thing it has going forward is it does have a nice landing area in the middle. So that's something. <laughs> However, there's no edge protection. And more importantly, and those are my, that's a minor quibble compared to what happens at the bottom of the ramp. Not one, but two full-size steps. 
So I guess they expect somebody in a chair to get enough speed going that by the bottom they can stick the landing. I don't know. So before I move on to the next part, and while these are all indeed real examples of particularly ridiculous inaccessibility, they're mostly intended as an entertaining warm-up exercise. Now I'd like to move on to six particularly common ADA myths, air quotes on myths, that much of the general population does not realize are just that, myths. Education is empowerment, as they say, so let's bring them and the facts necessary to debunk them to light. Next slide. One more. There we go. Okay. So myth number one. ADA employment lawsuits are overwhelming the courts. In 2016, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, which decides discrimination in employment cases, decided approximately 16,000 charges of discrimination. That is tiny if you really think about it, compared to the millions of businesses that are out there, hundreds of thousands of public and private employers, and tens of thousands of units of state and local governments that are required to comply. Next slide. Okay, myth number two. People with disabilities win most of their cases against employers under the ADA, which results in employers paying out massive awards. Fact. EEOC awards to people with disabilities in 2016 only totaled $131 million nationwide. Next slide. Myth number three. The ADA, along with other laws such as the FMLA and workers' compensation, especially hurt small businesses who cannot afford HR staff to advise them on legal requirements. Fact, small businesses with fewer than 15 employees are not covered by the ADA, and the FMLA only applies to employers with 50 or more employees. Further, the ADA does provide an undue hardship defense against reasonable accommodations that are unduly costly or burdensome. Small employers can more easily establish undue hardship because they have fewer resources. Okay. Myth number four. And yes, I picked a particularly ridiculous bathroom. In case you're thinking about that, I've never seen one looking like that. Anyway, the ADA is rigid and has excessive requirements for making existing facilities accessible. That's why I picked that picture. The fact, however, is that the ADA is all about common sense. The law recognizes that altering existing structures obviously costs more than making new construction accessible from the get-go. The law only requires that places of public accommodation remove architectural barriers in current facilities when it's readily achievable. And readily achievable is a key term tonight, which means that it can be done without much difficulty or expense. Quick and easy steps that can be taken may include ramping a step, Installing a, a bathroom grab bar, lowering a paper towel dispenser, rearranging furniture, widening a doorway, or painting accessible parking. Okay, next slide. Myth number five. The ADA requires that sign language interpreters for all situations, or that sign language interpreters be provided for all situations that involve people who are deaf and is inflexible. And I picked this one not because it applies to this audience, but again, emphasizing that the ADA is all about common sense. And so, for example, with this one, the ADA only requires that effective communication not exclude people with disabilities, which in many situations provides written materials or exchanging notes. The law doesn't require anything that would be an undue financial or administrative burden. Again, hammering that, home, that point home. Interesting to note, though, with this restaurant is that all the servers are deaf, actually, and they uh, show people how to sign their orders. So I thought this was kind of a cool one. All right, myth number six. Okay. The ADA requires extensive renovations of all state and local government buildings to make them accessible and is a heavy toll on budgets. Fact. 
the ADA requires that all government programs, not all government buildings, be accessible. Programmatic accessibility is a flexible requirement that does not require a local government to do anything that would result in, what is this again? Undue financial or administrative burden. Local governments have been subject to this requirement for many years under Title V of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, for example. Not every building or every part of every building needs to be accessible. Structural modifications are required only when there's no alternative available for providing access to that program. So for example, say a school has an inaccessible third floor. No elevator is needed if it provides programmatic accessibility for people in wheelchairs by having a class move to the ground floor, for example. Okay, next slide. Why myths matter? There's a particularly pervasive and harmful perception that there's such a thing as widespread ADA lawsuit abuse, particularly regarding physical accessibility at places of public accommodation. In some states, such as California and Arizona, a small number of attorneys and plaintiffs are litigating a large number of ADA accessibility lawsuits across those states. However, some special interest groups, such as the shopping center's lobby, for example, say that this is excessive and abusive. But I should be clear that in my opinion, ADA lawsuit abuse is really based more on myth than fact. From the data we have, which is pretty limited, I'll admit, but my uh, observations very much confirm this, only approximately 2% of public places are completely ADA compliant even now 27 years after the ADA. And so I would contend that more enforcement, not less, needs to be encouraged. Um, unfortunately though, as a result of lobbying by certain groups, HR 620, also known as the ADA Education Reform Act of 2017, is being considered federally by Congress, and that would severely limit private enforcement of the ADA through strict notification and cure requirements with exacting demand letter requirements. For example, the bill requires that a person with a disability give a business owner who has access barriers a written notice, 60 days to acknowledge there's a problem, and then another 120 days to, be, to begin to fix it. And, you know, no other constitutionally protected group of people is forced to wait 180 days to enforce their civil rights. That's just not the case. And so, Awareness matters, education matters, so everyone needs to know about that. All right, next slide. But now the law itself, as it exists currently, and hopefully for a long time, the ADA, the spirit of the ADA. So as long as everybody can read this, I'll have you read it for a moment before I continue. Who and what does the ADA cover? So the main titles of the ADA that I'm going to talk about today are Title I, which covers employment, Title II, which covers state and local governments, Title III, which covers public accommodations, in other words, private businesses that are open to the public, Title IV is telecommunications, and five is miscellaneous, but more important than you think. So a little further on each one before I move on. So Title I protects qualified applicants with disabilities from discrimination in employment. Title II is designed to protect people with disabilities in all services, programs, and activities provided or made available by state or local governments and their affiliate agencies. Title III states that owners of previously existing public accommodation facilities must remove architectural barriers when it's readily achievable to do so. Current existing ones after the ADA have to fully comply. Title IV relates to telecommunications. Won't really go into that. But Title V, miscellaneous, uh, covers items such as state immunity from suits for damages and the provision of attorney's fees. It further states that the federal government can sue states and assess financial penalties for noncompliance with the ADA. It further protects people with disabilities from retaliation when an ADA complaint is filed. And another important thing is that it states that stricter non-discrimination laws will always apply in states that have enacted those. 
So in other words, ADA is the floor, but states can add additional protections on top of that. Okay, next slide. So quick review, Title II entities must achieve programmatic accessibility. Title III entities must pursue barrier removal or alternatives in existing places of public accommodation. And so for a little more background, there's something called the uh, ADAG, which is the ADA Standards for Accessible Design, um, which was developed for new construction and alterations. New construction alterations are required to be fully accessible in compliance with the applicable provisions of the ADAG. Alterations must observe ADAG new construction criteria were technically feasible. Less stringent technical specifications may be applied where technical infeasibility is encountered. Alterations to primary function areas have an additional obligation to actually make the path of travel accessible to actually get to the altered area. Existing facilities must achieve a level of usability that balances user needs, the constraint of existing conditions, and the resources available. But again, I emphasize new construction after the ADA must meet the standards. Doesn't mean it does, but it must. Okay, next slide. So Title I, employment. Who's covered and what is discrimination? The ADA st states that a covered entity shall not discriminate against a qualified individual with a disability. This applies to job application procedures, hiring, advancement, and firing of employees, workers' compensation, training, everything else that comes with employment. But a covered entity is generally an employer engaged in interstate commerce, which nowadays is pretty much everyone, and having 15 or more workers. Discrimination may include limiting or classifying a job applicant in an or employee in an adverse way, denying employment opportunities to people who truly qualify or not making reasonable accommodations to the known physical or limitation of a disabled employee, or not advancing employees with disabilities in the business, or not providing the needed accommodations and training materials to uh, advance. Next slide. Now we get to Title II. Title II applies to anything a public entity does. Coverage is not limited to executive agencies, but includes activities of the legislature and the judicial branches of state and local governments. So that means the courthouse actually does have to be accessible to enforce your rights. All governmental activities of public entities are covered, even if they're contracted out. A public entity does not have to take any action that it can demonstrate would result in a fundamental alteration in the nature of its program or activity or an undue financial or administrative burden. Next slide. Oh, actually not next slide. <laughs> I'm not done with this yet. Enforcement. Private parties can bring lawsuits to enforce their rights under Title II of the ADA. That's not true with every law, so it's important to mention that. And um, the, the rule that you should keep in mind for Title II, for example, to show a violation of Title II, a plaintiff must demonstrate that they are or they represent the interests of a qualified individual with a disability, that this individual was either excluded from participation in or denied the benefits of some public entity's services or otherwise face discrimination, and that such exclusion, denial of benefits or discrimination was by reason of their disability. But really, that's, that's it. That's, that's what you have to prove. So next slide. Title three, public accommodations. So these include commercial facilities ranging from office buildings to factories to warehouses, anything that affects commerce and is open to the public. And um, Title III does not, however, cover entities that are controlled by religious organizations, including places of worship and private clubs, 
except to the extent their facilities are made open to the general public. For example, when they, um, they rent the location to other groups. Under Title III, public accommodations have three required areas of obligation. Operate in a non-discriminatory manner, ensuring that individuals with disabilities have the same opportunities to participate in and benefit from the services, activities, and goods offered as, as the same as other customers and clients. Ensure that communication with individuals with disabilities is effective with others and provide accessibility by removing barriers in existing facilities when it's readily achievable. And again, that is accomplished with little difficulty or expense in relation to the resources of the entity. Providing alternatives to barrier removal when modifications to remove barriers are not readily achievable. And providing accessibility in all renovations or uh, should be alterations to facilities and constructed of new facilities by complying with the ADEX, the ADA Standards for Accessible Design. Okay, next slide. So a quick part on the basics of service animals. So um, the basics, only dogs are recognized as service animals under Titles 2 and 3 of the ADA. And generally Title 2 and Title 3 entities must permit service animals to accompany with people with disabilities in all areas where members of the public are allowed to go. Quick definitions, a service animal is a dog that's individually trained to do work or perform tasks for a person with a disability. The work or task a dog has been trained to provide must be directly related to the person's disability. Dogs that are just there for comfort or emotional support do not qualify as service animals under the ADA. However, this definition does not affect or limit the broader definition of assistance animal under the Fair Housing Act or the broader definition of service animal under the Air Carrier Access Act. So briefly, where are service animals allowed under the ADA? State and local governments, businesses, and nonprofit organizations that serve the public generally must allow them where, uh, where the public is also allowed to go. But there can be some example or exceptions, such as uh, certain areas from hospital or certain areas of hospitals that require it to be sterile, such as operating rooms and burn units. And that um, under the ADA service animals must be under control. Everybody has one knows that. Inquiries, exclusions, charges, or other specific rules related to service animals. So when it's not obvious what an animal provides, only limited inquiries are allowed. So people can ask two questions. Is the dog a service animal required because of the disability? And what work or task has the dog been trained to perform? They can't ask anything else beyond that. And allergies and fears of dogs can't be used for denying access. I used to have a service dog. I ran into that. And a person can't ask somebody to remove the service dog from the premises unless it's out of control or the dog's not housebroken. That's kind of silly that's even in there. If they're a service dog, they're going to be housebroken. And then also uh, food service establishments. I mean, if there's health code issues there, then maybe. And people with disabilities who use service animals cannot be isolated from other patrons, treated less favorably than other patrons, or charge fees that are not. You'd be surprised. And um, one thing about miniature horses I think I should cover in addition to, because I did put a picture, so I have to say something about it. It's just like staring at us over there. In addition to the provisions about service dogs, the Department of Justice's revised ADA regulations do have a new separate provision talking about miniature horses that have been individually trained to do work or perform tasks for people with disabilities. Places that are covered by the ADA must modify, modify their policies to permit miniature horses where reasonable. And the four factors they look into is whether it's housebroken, whether it's under the owner's control, whether the facility can accommodate 
the miniature horse's type, size, and weight, and whether its presence will not compromise legitimate safety requirements for the safe operation of the facility. Next slide. Now a word about auxiliary aids. And so under the ADA, a public accommodation shall take those steps that may be necessary to ensure that no individual with a disability is excluded, denied services, segregated, or otherwise treated differently than other individuals because of the absence of auxiliary aids and services. Auxiliary aids that would result in an undue burden, significant difficulty or expense, it again, or in a fundamental alteration of the nature of the goods or services are not required. However, a public accommodation may still furnish another auxiliary aid if available that does not result in a fundamental alteration or undue burden. And usually auxiliary aids are brought up within the context of communication, but that's not the only area, and that's why I bring this up today. And so in um, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, a couple of years ago, there was a case called Anderson v. Franklin Institute, which basically involved Philadelphia's version of the Pacific Science Center. And the background on that case being that they have exhibits, both special and regular, IMAX, a lot of different things. And there was a person with a disability that wanted to attend those things, but he couldn't afford to pay for both his ticket and his caregiver's ticket. And so in that, in that case, they found, among other things, that um, not paying for the caregiver admission was an auxiliary aid and also a reasonable accommodation. And so as a result of that case, a lot of places have changed their policies and aren't requiring people who require a caregiver to pay for that ticket. And so there may be, a, there may be more cases that you're hearing about that. All right, next slide. On that note, we're done with the substantive presentation. We can move on to Q&A. You think you see a violation, let's say, at a business that you're trying to uh, go to or something? What would you suggest? What are the ways to handle it, the first steps, those kinds of things? Sure, and there's a, a handy-dandy resource guide that's going to be handed out to everybody that talks about in different contexts which agencies you should talk to, um, or you can always talk to an attorney, cough, cough, about it. But, um, but I can give you a, just a, a little background in, in general. So, I mean, if you see that a place is not accessible, I mean, the first thing you can do if you want is to go to ada.gov, and they have handy-dandy checklists on there and show you what the requirements are with visuals and things like that. And if it doesn't look right, it probably is a problem. But um, self-help is always a, a recommended way to look at it that way. And then you can either talk to a firm that does disability rights, or, for example, you could talk to the Washington Human Rights Commission, or if you're in Seattle, the Seattle Office for Civil Rights, um, or you could deal with the Department of Justice. Usually it's better if it's a bigger thing, and they might take on the case too. Is it true that you have to let them know before any action can be taken? Not currently. However, if that H.R. 620 was passed, yes, which we don't want that to happen. But currently, there is no requirement for a person with disability to get any kind of confrontation or tell them in advance that they have a problem. So I'm curious about, to follow up on that, is there things that all of us can be doing to make sure that that doesn't get passed? Uh, well, one good thing would be is to uh, either call or write your congressman. At the moment, this is in um, the House Judiciary Committee, and so it's still in Congress, still pretty early on. But I can mention that, for example, um, the 7th District, which covers most of Seattle, is Pramila Jayapal, and she's been kind of on the front lines of fighting this. And so she's been asking, actually, for people in her district to provide examples of how this law would hurt people with disabilities and how accessibility is important. So if you have specific stories, talk to her staff. Um, is there anything in the ADA that covers going to a restaurant and because of the 
pedestal at the table. You have to sit like 10 inches away from the table and stuff like that and get food all in your lap. Yeah, because um, that's an interesting point that you bring up because, for example, and I don't have it on the top of my head, but a certain percent, I think it was either 10% of tables have to be accessible, which means certain height requirements, you have to have certain knee clearance, and that sort of table wouldn't qualify for that. Does, have you personally or know of people who've like complained and gotten some um, impact when they've done that, gone like di directly to the facility itself? It's hit and miss. It just depends on the people that own the place. Um, what I can tell you is that attorneys who deal with these issues typically deal with the property owner and um, notify them of what the issues are and then try to work it out that way and kind of get around making it as personal and dealing with the business itself and making it more of a property landlord type issue. And that tends to be a good way to do it. But individual private citizens, it's kind of awkward to try to do it that way. I mean, it just depends on the owner. I am an OT at Harborview. Um, so my question is for some of the newly injured folks. And if you can speak to reasonable accommodations for rental housing. Mm. Yeah, because with um, in the housing context, you are entitled to request a reasonable accommodation. And um, can you give examples of kind of what sorts of accommodations you're thinking of? Um, I think, for example, ramp placement, um, grab bars, even switching apartments from like a third floor mm -hmm. apartment to a ground level. Yeah, and if um, a person with a disability writes a reasonable accommodation request in writing in a letter, then that's the best way to do it because the, the person that owns the housing has to consider that request. And although usually it is that the, um, the tenant has to pay for the cost of that accommodation though. I have a question about whether the ADA includes any sort of um, cycle of review for whether these things are being enforced with new buildings that are being built or <laughs> new things or... That'd be nice. That <laughs> so now... Um, a lot of cities put it in their municipal code um, as well and they integrate the ADA and they're technically including the city of Seattle supposed to be checking things, especially when they're new and have it be part of the permitting process, but I've had plenty of cases where the defendant just said, Seattle said it was fine, what are you talking about? So I really don't think it's been very effective, unfortunately. This, is, this question is based on a presentation I saw um, of a presenter here at the SCI forum, and it has to do with when I go to see my doctor. Um, since I've been injured, um, I don't get up on a table or whatever to get a thorough physical exam and, uh, you know, being paralyzed and having no sensation below the chest line. How do I know what's going on? Are there any requirements, medically speaking, that my primary care or something like that has to accommodate me? Uh, that one would also be fact-specific, but I believe there are requirements that cover medical facilities. I just haven't done one of those cases before. But if you go to ADA.gov and look on their website, they have good checklists that kind of show by category. What can a person do if they see somebody viola violating the dis disabled parking spots? <laughs> or they appear to be violating it. You look at the car, there's no placard, um, and there's nothing on the license, pl on the license plates. And... Uh, person getting out of the car does not appear to have a mobility impairment or any kind of impairment. But in any case, the law is they have to have a placard, right? Anyway, I'm just wondering what, what a citizen, whether disabled or not, <laughs> should do if they think that there's a violation happening. Yeah, see, that's a tough one. And that's, that's also why I mentioned that specifically the ADA provides for private enforcement of the standards because you can't enforce every law. And for parking, private citizens can't enforce that, usually. 
But in some counties, they have implemented kind of citizen enforcement brigades, that sort of thing. And so uh, the only really thing you could do in Seattle is maybe push for that to be implemented in your county as well or in your city. But at the moment, there's nothing you can really do other than talk to the person. But I don't know if that's something I recommend. Not that I don't do that sometimes. <laughs> Especially if it's a FedEx delivery driver. Yeah, I'll I'll call nine one one occasionally and just say this is not an emergency. But uh, if you get here quick enough, you can write this person a ticket, and it happens pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. So it's very gratifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, you could be non-confrontational in the beginning and just say, hey, just, just wanted to check. Um, do you need that spot? And especially if it's like if you need to park there or it's causing a problem, then just kindly explain. And then if they're rude about it, then all bets are off. <laughs> but, I mean, I have more of an issue and I feel more comfortable with it if it's somebody like a FedEx driver that works for a company and they're clearly using it as a loading area, things like that. I think it's obvious. But... A lot of the time, I mean, you don't really know if somebody needs that spot or not. So I'm just careful because a few times I've kind of gotten upset with somebody who actually needed it. So, Yeah, sometimes you can't tell just by looking at somebody. Right. And so I would, I would advise a little bit of caution on that. Yeah. I was just wondering if you could talk to the business if it happens a lot and it's their parking. You know. Yeah, I mean, that is something I've done with a number of businesses is just told them that the people that work for them are misusing them. And that can be a good tactic because a lot of businesses are, are very embarrassed when they learn about that and they certainly don't want the bad publicity. So that is a potential thing if, if it's people who work at that place parking there. That's a good one to mention. I was uh, going into a Starbucks one day and um, the, the one disability, this is many years ago, the one disability spot had the um, gardener's truck in it, the guy who was out watering the flowers and deadheading the flowers and stuff. And I went in and told the people at Starbucks. I, so I did that. I, I went in and told the people at Starbucks that this person was using it illegally and they took care of it. So I guess maybe mm -hmm. they were, was educational for them. And they were embarrassed. I should mention a quick um, word on kind of frequent issues that do come up that people don't necessarily know about, and I didn't have time to cover it in the presentation, but what everybody should know is that generally speaking, every parking lot has to have at least one accessible parking spot. And the minimum is that at least one spot be van accessible, which means it actually says van accessible, has the striped area that's at least 96 inches wide next to it. And so a lot of places mistakenly think that doesn't apply until it's a bigger parking lot. But at minimum, you always have to have one van spot and have one spot total. So if a parking lot doesn't have accessible parking at all, that's probably a violation. And that also, um, and this is a really important thing that I've encountered plenty and so have my clients, that um, oftentimes places put a ramp in the striped area. So it's kind of like a built out ramp that's either asphalt or or otherwise, and th those are really dangerous, and those are not allowed under the ADA. So if you see one of those, that's a problem as well. I have a question about um, what are the consequences for businesses that do have violations? Is there a fine on top of them needing to um, change whatever is wrong, or well, what kind I'm of glad burden you asked that are we question. bringing down on them? Well, it depends on what state you're in, because under the ADA itself, no. However, like I was mentioning, the ADA is the floor, and states can enact stricter non-discrimination laws. So, for example, in California, Florida, New York, I think, there is a fine that comes with it, and that's why there's a whole lot more litigation in those states, because the attorneys realize there's more of a financial implication, whereas in this state, for example, in most states, the most that can be obtained is attorney fee compensation on the matter. But no, um, in this state, there, there is no fine. Um, for the parking spots, if it's a van space, um, 
and the part that's got the stripes on it is all like has either holes in it or is on a hill or is bumpy or, right. you know, common sense it would be dangerous for a mm -hmm. chair to come off into. Right. Is that a violation? Uh, yes. Yeah, parking has to be on a firm, stable, and slip-resistant surface that's level. <laughs> and if it doesn't have an accessible parking sign, that's a that's a penalty on the business in state law. You always have to have a sign. It doesn't count to just paint the ground. How that sign have to be? That sign has to be 60 inches to the bottom. So most of the time, it's not even close. So you said the spaces have to be flat, not on a hill? Right. Everett's got a bunch of spaces <laughs> with signs that say $400 fine, but they're on a hill. Yeah. Although, as I brought up before, though, there is a technical and feasibility exception if it's physically not possible right. with the terrain. But oftentimes, places can at least make it better. They do have a lot of spaces. I have to say that for them. But it is kind of awkward. Or if, like, a different part of the parking lot is on less of a slope, they need to put them there and not on the steeper part. That's on the street. Oh, on street parking. Okay. Um, I have a question back to the parking lots needing to have at least one spot that's um, mm -hmm. accommodating. Does that – how does that come into play when it's a public – or public versus private parking lot? Uh, can you be sense? a little more specific on what you're asking? Well, like there, there are plenty of places downtown, for example, where there mm -hmm. are lots that are privately owned. Does that? If it's privately that? owned and open to the public, that's the important part. So yes, those would count. Okay. Yeah, it's places of public accommodation is what Title III is. So any place other than places of worship and private clubs that's open to the public, it's got to be compliant. But yeah, that's a very that's a very common problem. I've had several lawsuits on that. Well, that brings up my question about: um, Can you just talk about what are like the most common disability-related lawsuits or issues that come come to you in your practice? Well, with my practice, I've been it's been a mix really, and I've been focused on physical accessibility just because it's so obvious and so everywhere. But it's a mix between large places like stadiums and um, performing arts centers, places like that, parking lot chains that own hundreds of lots, that sort of thing. And then also just a lot of individual properties where the violations are so bad that people just can't even use them. And so be it that they don't have any accessible parking or they have a dangerous ramp or there's you know, steps to get in or whatever, things like that. So just a lot of just really basic things unfortunately, which still baffles the mind a little bit 27 years after the ADA. And that a lot of places just think that it doesn't apply to them and they have the whole grandfathering argument, which isn't really even a thing. Because the existing buildings, it's the readily achievable standard, which I went through. There is no grandfather clause. Oh, and if a place tells you it's historic, it needs to be a historic registry to get out of the requirement. You can't just say, oh, it's old, so it must be historic. I get that all the time. And even if it is under that area of the ADA, there are requirements, and that doesn't get them out of complying. It's just different requirements. I remember reading, I think, somewhere where it said that there was the federal ADA law, but then the states could be different. Each state could have a different mm -hmm. take on that same thing. Like, they could have different laws or different... Right. Is that... That's true? Yeah. Yeah. Different states can have a little different details to it, and and generally, it's that the ADA is the floor, and then you can build on top of that at the state level. So that's why states like California, for example, and Florida have added on to the ADA. Or even ones like Hawaii, they have more detailed requirements. To clarify some of the things. And our state does that a little bit too with some of the requirements as far as um, adding additional clarifications. We just don't have a fine like some states. Yeah, California is great. We stayed there for a while and sued. How many people did we sue? Mm. <laughs> we sued the Coliseum in, in LA oh, wow. for and bathrooms. Yeah. Not, yeah. Wow. He had to use the ladies' room. 
We had to wait on the line, and we had to go into. He wasn't the only one. We had to go into. I mean, it was ridiculous. So, anyways, we won that one. Yeah, but you'd be surprised how many stadiums have issues still, even the new ones. And it's also more subtle things like um, the way the seats are distributed. There have been quite a few lawsuits about that, and that you can't put all of the accessible seats in the most expensive section, and then say, "Oh, why aren't any people with disabilities using them?" That comes up quite a bit. And that now with new buildings, you know, they have to have the accessible seating integrated in all the sections. And if they don't, then they have to change the pricing accordingly to make it fair. You can't just say, oh, sorry, they're in the most expensive section. I guess you're going to have to pay $300. What do you wish the ADA did include that does not currently include? Well, I think it needs to be strengthened like it has been in some states with some financial penalty. And I think that attorney fees, and I'm biased in saying this, but I think it does matter, that attorney fees should be mandatory rather than permissive. Because what's happening with laws like H.R. 620 is that they really want to completely disincentivize private enforcement so that nobody deals with these issues. Because if you fix the problem before any kind of legal judgment, then you don't have to pay any attorney fees. And so this would allow defendants to do that every time, and then nobody would take on these cases except on a pro bono basis. And the ADA is written really in a way that it needs private enforcement. The DOJ can't do it all. They would need hundreds more attorneys if they were going to do that. So I guess, yeah, so mandatory attorney fees and then a fine, but not the same level as California because that kind of has a perverse incentive. It's $4,000 for a violation. I think it would be like two would be <laughs> better. Although in California, one thing I like, though, that they've done is that when you transfer ownership for a place that's a public accommodation, then you have to certify that it's compliant to the next owner. So I think that'd be good. Oh, and then also integrating into the building codes. I think if inspectors actually did this for the permitting, make it way better. Um, you know, how do how do you know what to ask for as a new renter or oh, how okay. do you know what should be expected? Um, obviously, if you're newly injured and in the hospital, you have OTs to kind of help you talk through mm, what okay. to look for and what not, but what can somebody, if they have been out in the world and they just now need to go to a new place, how do they know what to ask for? Is there a good resource? Uh, well, I've included a number of resources in the resource list. Um, for housing, the kinds of places that apply for that, I mean, again, the ADA has lots of resources, the ADA website, ada.gov. And then um, the Fair Housing Authority also has a website, and they have resources there, I believe. And then also um, a good place to talk to about just accessibility is um, the, um, oh gosh, what is it, the Northwest... Um, Hold on a second, I have to pull it up again. It's the ADA. Uh, Northwest ADA Center, yeah. yeah. That's Blank County, yeah. Or Disability Rights Washington. That's another good one. Or you can contact me. <laughs> we cover a lot of those questions as well. I'm also curious about, have you dealt with any issues about when people have built new buildings and they technically meet the... Um, the name of access, but not in reality access. We had a situation a few years ago where um, someone uh, had developed a new mobility impairment at one of our new dorms. Um, it had a button to push for access to open the door for her, mm -hmm. but the distance from the button to the door was impossible for her to meet. So she couldn't actually live in this place that had a nice accessible bathroom and all of that because she actually couldn't make it from the button to the door in time before the door shut. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, fortunately, I've found with places that are the, the rare instance that actually are compliant, those ones tend to be pretty understanding if you explain what the problem is and why it matters. It's the rest of the places that already have a bunch of issues that 
then are like, well, why is this a thing? Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's a little bit of an exception that I'm getting into, but it, if a place is already compliant, then usually those are the, the easier ones to deal with. Because it does actually take some effort to actually be compliant, so they put mm-hmm. some thought into it. Right. I'm assuming they had architects and everything, but they didn't really think about... I mean, I think for somebody in a wheelchair, that would have been no issue, but um, needing uh, other, you know, mobility device uh, crutches was not possible to make that happen, so... Yeah. So this might be a dumb question, but so for those type of doors... Oh, sorry. Uh, so for those type of doors, then, like, what's the required amount of time for it to remain open? Do you know offhand? <laughs> I have not memorized that. Yeah. But I think there is actually... ADA.gov. It's going to keep saying it. ADA.gov. Yeah. I think there is a requirement. Does anybody... And they have both, um, they have both the checklist, like I mentioned, but they have the 91 standards okay. and the 2010 standards. Yeah. And so the 91 standards have been implemented since the ADA was founded. And then they updated a lot of the requirements. And so since, I believe, uh, it was like March of 2011 or 2012, they've had the new requirements. So anything before that. So anyway, the ADA website has everything. But even, even I sometimes have trouble understanding those, though. So you may have to talk to somebody. Any last questions? Please join me in thanking you, Conrad. This is fantastic and great information. Thank you for listening to the SCI Forum podcast. To learn more or to make a donation, please visit sci.washington.edu.